everybody. Welcome to episode two of Dr. Crow's Bird Show. I'm here with my co-host, Gur the Sun Conyer. Uh, joining me today is going to be a special guest, Dr. Deb Bridge. She is a fellow depth psychologist, and she's going to be an honorary member of our flock today. So welcome, Deb. Can't wait to fly on in. <laughs> our topic today is going to be sacred birds. We see birds in our everyday life, uh, outside of our windows, sometimes even in our houses. But what about birds and spirituality? Uh, so one of the reasons that Deb is going to be joining me today is she did spend a past life as a nun and you've studied shamanism. And so I thought what better person here to help us talk about sacred birds than you. As you said, I, I was a, a, not a Catholic nun because, you know, there are Buddhist nuns and Episcopal nuns and all sorts of nuns uh, for part of my life. So something that most people in, at least in the U.S., that would be familiar with because so many are Christian, and we are such a Christian-based society, is uh, the Holy Spirit, you know, part of the Trinity, and all, often a dove, you know, we think of mm -hmm. the dove flying as, as the Holy Spirit, and, and I just, I think sometimes, as much as I sometimes have some issues with the church as a whole, that they really got something right by choosing a, a bird for this. Yeah, it's interesting to note that the angel is actually, in some ways, like a bird-human hybrid. Yes, I mean, the wings. And it's also interesting to think of the fact that birds are often seen as divine messengers or even as omens. I know uh, in many Native American cultures, for example, if you see like an owl, depending on where you are, it can be either an omen of something really, really good that's about to happen or something incredibly terrible. My shamanic teacher, um, Cecile Carson, she told a story of the, the room where we did a lot of our um, initiations in. She actually one day had a, an owl crash right into the window and kind of leave an imprint, you know, of, of the bird's oh, wow. wings on it. And, and seeing that as, as really a, a message, you know, um, an affirmation of, mm -hmm. of the work being done there. Um, and and to, that, to this day, I think um, owl remains really important to her. So uh, let's talk for a minute about um, spirituality and birds. And I know that you've thought a lot about what does spirituality even mean? Um, so do you have some thoughts? I know, and I don't know if you remember back during our coursework, when we, were, we had a class with um, Dr. Kofin, mm -hmm. and we were in his class, and suddenly it hit, so this is back in like 2011, and it hit me really strongly in the middle of class, where I know for about five minutes, I took over the class. I was that student that did that, and I hated what other people did. I remember. <laughs> I did it. <laughs> Because it so hit me that there was something really definably different between spirit and soul. And I didn't know what, what that was. And it became my quest to figure that out. What I finally came to after many years, much writing and much reading, that spirit is an aspect of soul. And it's what happens when spirit is, is embodied in our physical bodies, you know. And it's the philosopher uh, here, Dave Chardin made the statement that we are spiritual beings having an embodied experience. And so I came then to understand that it's actually spirit and body that we hold in opposition. And so you can do a lot of reading in that. And unfortunately, in Christianity in particular, they were held in opposition so that spirit became desirable and the body became demonized. You know, so everything having to do with being a body was bad. So in the Christian 
dogma and doctrine, you have a lot of things that are actually punishing the body. Then I discovered the work of Jungian analyst Marion Woodman, who really talks about the need to enter our bodies, to know our bodies, to become our bodies, and to and to hold them as sacred as well, that, that they don't, it, the body is no longer profane. So that we need to have spirit and body together. In, in the work of Jung, when we talk about the transcendent function, it's where you hold two things that are in opposition and you hold them in that tension. And in doing so, a third thing arises. And so for me, what I've defined that third thing as being is soul. So when you hold the body and you hold spirit in tension, the soul arises. Now, unfortunately, in our society, anyway, we are so competitive. We are not very good at holding things in tension. One has to win out over the other rather than holding both of them. But I think it's really exciting to look at the idea of birds as, as being a, a way that we can project our spirituality onto another being. And so it, it holds that aspect of ourselves in a way that's outside of us that we can look to for messages and even in the times of death. There's an important dis distinction there too, though, is to understand that the birds themselves aren't, you know, spirits. Um, they themselves are also embodied spirits. The embodiment of birds holds aspects of spirituality that we don't have access to, you know, the ability to fly, you know, to be in the air, to get closer to the sun than we do. So again, birds just at least bringing our attention back to the spiritual aspects of who we are, which I really believe. Um, our society has lost. So next we're going to get into bird tales. Bird tales. Deb, I heard that you had a story that you wanted to share about a crow. It's coming up for me to talk about my experience with the crow and I'm not, um, I mean, I've, I've been aware of birds. I'm certainly not the, the friend to birds that you are. Um, nothing against birds. Um, they're just not in my fish or my thing. So, but I had a good friend. Oh, we were the same age. We, we worked together. We used to go out. We were part of a group of people that went out for each other's birthdays every year, you know, our girls night out. And the year that we both turned 40, um, she, she um, had breast cancer. And five years later, the year we both turned 45, she was declared free of the breast cancer. But within that year was then diagnosed with bone cancer. Then the year that we turned 50, she died. She died from the bone cancer. And I can just remember going home from, I think it was from the viewing, you know, of her body and going home and sitting on my couch and just looking out my window and there was a, a tree outside my window. And all of a sudden this crow just came and sat right in front of my window and, and sat there for a good several minutes and stared at me, you know, and I'm in tears because I'm sad. And it was just so clear to me that it was this visitation from Amy, you know, a kind of not coming and saying, oh, everything's okay, but just the idea, you know, that because it had never happened before, and it was only that, and it didn't happen after that. It was just in that moment that this bird came, and that it was a crow, and crows in many, many cultures are considered either harbingers of death or um, a visitation, and as we know scientifically now, crows are extremely intelligent. They have this extremely wonderful lives that if, if anybody took the time to follow them, they're phenomenal creatures. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we so, talked about yeah. them last week. <laughs> and then I've learned more since then, so oh, yeah. <laughs> I'll have to do a follow-up episode, crows too. <laughs> there we go. And in my shamanic practice, now although um, I don't have a lot of birds in my totem list, when they do appear, another person I was very close to, when she died, 
I knew that her her primary spirit guide was an eagle, you know, and in fact, I had a um, shamanic journey once where her eagle and my salmon were dancing around a fire. Oh, wow. And, um, it was a very strong, strong image. Her daughters, and I, I can't remember if it was in a conversation or if it was during the, the memorial service or what, but her daughters relayed that her very last words that she said were, I see the wings and they're beautiful. Hmm. And she said that right before she died. So I've, in my mind, tried to understand, yeah, I wondered if she was seeing eagle wings, you know. Yeah. But on the other hand, not long after that, I, or a few months later, I had a, in a journey, I had a vision of her. She was a tall, thin woman, you know, and she was dressed just all in white, like with the huge angel wings on her, you know. So I've always wondered about the relationship because the eagle was her primary spirit guide. And oh, wow. you look at any any type of um, spirit guide you kind of look at what do you what are the aspects you understand of them as you know them in this world you know so if gertie there was going to be a if she was going to be a um a spirit guide you would just take the aspects of her that you know and and that would be the message you know that you get so and now it's preen yourself preen myself oh, you <laughs> <laughs> and your friend i see she's yeah, friend and your friends too <laughs> Does she know about the coronavirus? Yeah, a little preen goes a long way. Yeah. So for me, the the that crow story is um, is important uh, for me again because um, birds aren't as present in my life. So when they do become, they're they're that they're just that much bigger of a presence um, mm -hmm. when they are there. It's a good place to bring in the alchemy aspect of it. I really got interested in alchemy actually at the at that conference with Tom Elsner. It was in the time that I was developing my dissertation and, and there was just something missing and I didn't know what it, actually I really wasn't even sure I didn't even know something was missing until he did this workshop at the end of the workshop like oh well this is what's missing alchemy and so th there's a lot of use of bird imagery in alchemy and I struggled with understanding alchemy I, I remember standing outside a classroom going and I had taught science for well, yeah, yeah. some people who are listening might not know what alchemy is so um just briefly, I mean, a lot of the history of it has to do with trying to turn base metals into gold. I think of it as kind of like the Rumpelstiltskin of ah. science, you know, <laughs> uh, but symbolically it still has a lot of potence in terms of um, how do you transform something mundane into something sacred. Exactly, and it has taken me many years to come to that because I remember standing outside of the classroom and as a science teacher going, I absolutely know it's impossible to turn lead into gold can't happen. I don't know what the hell they're talking about. And it took me a long time to understand that the process is actually metaphorical. And I, I conjecture the fact that a, a lot of the work was done um, during the time where the Inquisition was well in, in place, you know, and so you couldn't say things that were against church teaching, mm -hmm. or you would die, burn at the stake. Talk about transformational. Um, <laughs> it's, so then it started to make sense to me that what was happening was the, in a lot of the work, alchemy was done by monks and so that what they really had done was developed a language that talked about inner things that were going on transformational things in our inner lives but using outward expressions and outward things and in my research I did learn that after all it is possible to turn lead into gold they've done it at the Lucerne accelerator something accelerator and anyway so they did it they were able to change a small amount of if not exactly lead, like the next thing over in the periodic chart, 
that, that was different by an atom or two. And they did turn it into gold, but the price to do that, it cost like trillion dollars to make one ounce of gold. So oh gosh. extremely not cost effective. In our time of, you know, positivistic science and being very literal, um, I had to learn that it wasn't about turning literal lead into gold, but turning what's in our life we consider to be very mundane life experiences, very difficult life experiences. A lot of the stuff that we suffer from how to take those experiences and to turn them into the gold of living that connects us back to our true purpose and the essential part of who we are. But so there's an alchemical process and they use the, they use Latin words for the name and the very first part of the process is called the negredo. And it really is the time of suffering, the things in your life when depression happens, suicidality happens, people get really down and you think of what's left after a fire, you know, things just have to get burned away. So in that blackness, that darkness, they've actually aligned that with the, um, the black crow, that the crow is the symbol of being in the negredo. So it makes yeah, a I lot know you should have been on last week's episode on crow. You're full of crow facts. <laughs> More than I even know sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> But it makes a lot of sense to me then that when I was, you know, in grief, you know, grieving over my friend who had died, that it was a crow who came to me as opposed to, I mean, some people it's a hummingbird, other people it's a robin. You know, I've whatever. seen that online uh, videos of people who will have a like bird come down and spend a bunch of time with them, like a wild hummingbird or something. Um, and sometimes even like perch right in their hand. Mm -hmm. or, um, but for me, it was this crow, and it was because, I, I believe, it was because I was in, you know, a deep mourning, very sad, let alone my greater life was just in, you know, depression. So it just made a lot of sense that the, the black crow came to me in this, in this time of the negredo. So that, that part of the inner process in which we encounter our darkness. So in alchemy, the next step, if, if you can stay with that negredo, that it evac eventually moves into what's called the albedo, which is just really Latin for white. The bird that is associated by alchemists with the stage is, is the white swan. I've always loved swans. Just think of everything you think of, or at least when I think of a swan, I, you know, there's, there's grace and beauty and, you know, but have you ever been chased by a swan? <laughs> <laughs> been chased by plenty of geese. <laughs> because they can get quite vicious as well, you know. Um, but in this state, in this place of the albedo, and so what's signified by the white swan is the, the dying off or the burning off of all of the extraneous stuff. And for some people who have a bit of a different view on the whole alchemical process than I might, would say that it's also the, the dying of all the senses, you know, so it's kind of like the death of the body and now you're left just with pure spirit. You know, you're just into that spiritual realm. And I love this next one because the image that comes to mind right away is the peacock, you know, and you know, that male peacock in, in full feather, you know, tail feather. And, and it's kind of like the beginning of when, what we've now moved into, into the spiritual realm the fullness of the beauty of that and along with that it, however it, this kind of always fascinates me because this stage is called the rubedo which is simply um, again latin for red because at this very next stage and they were pretty much close together the peacock is the pelican and the pelican has become one of my favorite symbols of transformation because 
the life of the pelican is is very self-sacrificing to its to its young. In fact, if, if it doesn't have the means to feed it, it literally pierces its chest. So if you picture a pelican reaching over with its beak and piercing its chest to draw blood, literally to draw blood, so therefore the redness, the rubedo, to feed its young, the selflessness of giving over, and so sort of a, a surrender. So in our inner transformation, when we think of pelicans in our lives, or as a stage in our life, is a time that we are called to be self-sacrificing. And this is often with the pelican, it's often associated with caring and nurturing for their young. And I, I think every parent in the world understands this stage, you know, of, of self-sacrifice and having to give literally of yourself mm -hmm. uh, to nurture the other. Well, the alchemist, out of alchemy, to some people, um, has grown our our discipline of chemistry. Um, I did teach chemistry for a while, and one of the things I loved the most about chemistry was all of the equipment. And the glassware, I don't know why, I was always fascinated by all the glassware. Like lighting the Bunsen burners, Deb. <laughs> I love Bunsen burners, and I loved all the different kind of flasks that you have and what they're used for. And there's actually a pelican flask, which huh, if you can picture a pelican reaching its head down and piercing its, its uh, heart, that is the shape of the pelican flask. It's like globes with a little thing in between with a, a neck that comes around and goes in. And so alchemy talks a lot about what is the container within where things are transformed. And so a pelican flask mm. takes what's in the bottom of the flask and the impurities burn off of that and what's distilled. It's kind of like a, a, a still. But what's distilled is the pure. What's mm. the stuff that you wanted to get rid of back in that negredo stage is it, kind of burned off. Yeah, in alchemy, they also have uh, the philosopher's egg that's considered to be one of the divine containers, which I studied a lot uh, in my dissertation as a place of transformation. So if you're saying it symbolically, um, maybe, for example, the ingredients that you put into the still are maybe like your good experiences and your bad experiences. And once you boil all that away, what is the residue that you have left? And that is basically... Maybe like the lessons that you learned along the way or, or some symbolic gold. Very good segue because the, the last bird on this list and last part of the transformation um, is the phoenix. And, um, oh, and the phoenix represents the philosopher's stone, but it's meant to be the pure product of the work. You know, it's exactly what you just described is what is the philosopher's stone. And in the terms of like base metal to gold, the Philosopher's Stone is, is considered the gold of the work. And when you've gotten there, it would be nice to think that you're just done, you know? <laughs> it starts all over again, and you go back to the, the black hole, and, um, and you kind of go through in a spiral manner. But I, I just, I love the fact that the alchemist called on birds, you know, mm -hmm. as, as a way of symbolizing this. And I, I have a hunch that given the Inquisition and the danger that a lot of these people were working under, that they were using this as a language mm -hmm. that would befuddle, you know, the church authorities who would be out to look for them, you know. That's part of the reason why they had to create symbols such as this. When we started, you know, talking about this podcast, I just thought that was the perfect thing because it really holds to how birds just in who they are really do hold the energy of our, the spiritual aspects of who we are as people. Mm -hmm. And in doing that, no matter what you call that, which is phenomenologically beyond us, you know, so archetypically we would call it 
all sorts of things. You know, I mean, many, many people would just say God or the source of all things or the Atman or, I mean, there's just so many, many words for it. It's hard to, to give it a global word that would make everybody comfortable. But that the, I, I really, really believe that when we encounter birds, we are meant to think of that which is beyond us. I think a word that you've used before is the numinous. Numinous, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, Again, other people don't know what that is either. Yeah, yeah. Sense of awe, that sense of yeah. something more than us, mm-hmm. um, more than who we are. So whatever you want to name it. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I think that's an important thing to note is just how universally birds are regarded as sacred, not just in indigenous cultures in North America, South America, all around the globe, but in Christianity, as you've mentioned, in alchemy, which is the basis for modern chemistry. So to me, it's almost like a human universal, like dancing or singing. So I think there's definitely something underneath that that's in the collective unconscious that's something that we're all tapping into. And you're leading there to to the idea of um, archetypal psychology, you know, what are archetypes, and I've really come to understand the archetypes. So again, in part of my background in science, I taught physics for a little while, and um, understanding that our, the spiritual aspects of who we are is really energy, you know, and so there's this archetype of the source of everything, you know, mm-hmm. so whatever you want to name it, but it is universal to all beings. I keep thinking of, of, of taking a rose, you know, and if you use the words in any other language, phenomena of the rose is what we experience, and it doesn't matter what you call it, it's the experience is the same. So the same thing with the archetypal energy of the numinous. So to bring this back down to the birds, you know, and that universally, birds point us to that. Gosh, just what came to mind was the, the idea of um, the Buddhist sky burials, where, you know, if, if you're in Tibet, there's not a lot of ground to bury people in. And not really, oh, there's not a lot of wood to burn. And so I'm not really sure why they don't do funeral pyres, but they just put people up on ledges and let the vultures eat them. You know? And that's their way. I mean, it's, it's a sacred thing, you know, to, to return back to the newness, to release the spirit from the body. Well, that's a perfect segue to uh, what I have for the flocking news. Okay. The flocking Today on the Flocking News, uh, we're looking at an article called Pesticides Are Killing Off the Andean Condor. Um, and this was published last month uh, on EcoWatch. And so a quote from the article is, for the native peoples of South America, it is the sacred bird that connects the world we live in with the cosmos, biologist Carlos Pena says. We see condors on the emblems, shields, and flags of the Andean countries. The loss of these birds also represents a great cultural loss for our society. So what's happening is uh, basically the Andean condors, there's only 6,700 individuals remaining. Uh, 2,500 of these live in Argentina. And a lot of the local uh, farmers are fearing for their livestock, unfounded, because as you know, condors clean up basically dead animals. So they're a very important part of the ecosystem, as well as being um, important to uh, the native people there. So in fear, they're basically poisoning with pesticides uh, these carcasses and intentionally having the Andean condors feed on them. And they've had so many as 34 die in one site in 2018, I believe. So yeah, not great news for Andean condors, but it just goes to show 
you know, sort of the disparity we have between the way that we regard sacred birds and the way that we treat like the actual birds um, that are behind those symbols. So mm -hmm. on that note, I think we could end it with a bird of advice. A bird of advice. The next time that you go outside and you see a bird or maybe you look over at your shoulder and you see a bird for listeners who can't see preening my ear which is what Gur, my co-host, is doing currently. You know, think not just about who you're seeing right in front of you. Think to this reservoir, this collective regard and reverence that we have for sacred bird symbols, and maybe try to get closer to the idea of the actual bird you're seeing and the idea of the soul or spirituality and how do we get the spiritual aspects in regards to birds back into their souls as beings that are not just matter and not just spirit but in soul beings matters and spirit so thanks for getting deep with me today dr deb fridge well that's where we live dr crow in the desert. yes yes thanks again for tuning in to the bird show uh, on behalf of Gur and i and dr deb bridge uh, we thank you for being here and we'll see you next time for another flocking good time Doctor Crow turns on the radio. Two Doctor Crow's bird show.